I'm Jordan Fees. And I'm Adam Kaiser. Welcome to the Risky Business Podcast. With us is Valerie Charles, a former colleague at GAN Integrity and now a partner at Stoneturn, a global advisory firm. Valerie started her career in criminal defense, representing white collar companies under investigations. After transitioning to an in-house role, she discovered her passion for preventative criminal law, or she calls it the sexy side of compliance. Before we dive into our conversation with her, let's discuss some of the trending topics impacting compliance professionals today. Adam, what is happening in the world of compliance? Absolutely nothing. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> One you know, kind of interesting thing, which was, you know, you know, Transparency International released the latest version of their Corruption Perceptions Index, or the CPI, as they like to call it, which is used all over the world by companies, people, technology to just kind of help provide a level set of corruption for, you know, countries around the world and, and so forth. And the thing that sort of came out that's you could say is depressing is that most countries have made little to no progress in combating corruption, you know, in a decade. I would imagine over the last year, it certainly wasn't the top priority. And then just the concept of corruption in and of itself, undermining COVID-19 responses and so forth. So like, there's a lot. I mean, if you look at the last year, it's almost like the world, or at least resolving some of these things is probably on pause. If not on pause, definitely not nearly at the top of the list from a priority perspective, right? If it's, you know, combating corruption or, you know, trying to avoid millions of people being sick or dying, I think it's it's clear where, you know, where the choices were made. But they also kind of added a new piece to it, this with a, a trouble at the top report, because basically they're highlighting that, you know, the top performers in the rankings, you know, they show high levels of perceived public sector integrity, but it sort of doesn't take into account things, you know, other indications of corruption, such as like, unaccountable financial services and foreign bribery committed by top performers. So hence the name trouble at the top. So there's, there's a lot there, you know, it's definitely a good baseline index, um, but certainly not the be all end all truth you could say in corruption. Right. I mean, what stuck out to me was the, the trouble at the top report, just, it felt like a, a refreshing tone. And I think the key thing we need to keep in mind when we're looking at, at the CPI results is that it's perception right? This is all perceived corruption or perceived integrity. Because I think, you know, the industry has been frustrated for a long time at these results. Um, and, you know, often say, don't be fooled by these results, because you still see these some of the biggest corruption cases coming out of the countries that have the highest perceived integrity. And so it's kind of this contradiction that we've always seen. And it's, I thought the report was nice that it addressed that, you know, I think benchmarking is still essential and still necessary, but um, it's it's good to know that these can be taken with a grain of salt. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. How can compliance professionals integrate data like the, the CPI into their programs to achieve better results? You know, I'm no expert, Jordan, but that's exactly what we'll hear today on Risky Business with Valerie Charles. Val, let's start with the beginning. We generally think that most kids don't dream of growing up to mitigate corporate risk. And we could be wrong and maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of leads to the question, how did you actually get into compliance? You know, like a lot of people in compliance, I started out coming from the legal side of the fence. So I was a practicing lawyer for many years. I worked in, in big law doing criminal defense, white collar work, primarily though not exclusively anti-corruption FCPA work. When I went in-house, I sort of discovered that Compliance has a sexy component because it's preventative criminal work. You're working really hard to keep people out of hot water and make sure that the business can keep operating as efficiently as possible 
while still mitigating risk. And I think that sort of approach requires creativity and requires a lot of deep business understanding. I mean, if you're good at the job, you're a partner to the business. And and I love that. From there, I pivoted, as you know, and, and joined Scan Integrity on the founding team. And then now I am a partner at StoneTurn. And at StoneTurn, I personally work on proactive compliance most of the time, though the firm does everything related to corporate risk. So we have, we do monitorships, we do forensic accounting, we test controls, we have uh, deep capabilities in due diligence and investigations. We do some intellectual property, expert testimony and economic damages work. It's a really, really unique firm and a, and a great place to work. And, and I feel really lucky because I've landed in a place where I can sort of meld together my interest in legal work and, and criminal defense, as well as investigations and proactive compliance and data analytics. So it's sort of a perfect place for me to have landed and put all of these tools from my historical tool belt in play. One thing we always like to do is ask our guests to share an oh shit moment. And that's a way for us to be a little saucy. These are essentially career defining moments and they don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean, oh shit, that's bad. It could be you have a revelation about something and it's like, wow, this is really what I want to be doing, or this is really powerful what I'm doing, or this is a big pivot for me. Or it could be a more traditional, oh shit, I screwed up, something bad happened, but you learned so much from it that it's certainly something that's kind of left a mark on you. So tell us um, what's in your bag of, of stories there. So after I practiced in kind of big law traditionally for a while, I was in-house building a compliance program for a European tech company. And essentially what happened is I had responsibility at that time for the global anti-corruption program and also the global trade program. And I got a kind of a FYI from one of our partners on a project where we were selling an aircraft to a Middle Eastern government. And one of the partners that we were working with literally sent me an email with an FYI and the attachment to the email (laughs) was a voluntary disclosure relating to our project where they were letting the DTCC, which is the Office of Defense Trade Controls Compliance, basically let them know that we had moved some equipment over there that was ITAR controlled without proper licensure. And so the long and short of it is, if you're going to voluntarily disclose something to to an enforcement agency, you usually want to be the the one to do it first. You don't want to be, (laughs) you don't want to be the one who's, you know, you've already the government's already aware of it. And and they know that, that you know that somebody else has already told the government and then you call the government and voluntarily disclose. It's just, it's not a strong position. And it was particularly scary because it was a radio, a set of radios. And these radios were designated as significant military equipment, which is an ITAR controlled thing. And, and the bottom line is the radios were sitting in a control system in an aircraft that was already sitting in the Middle Eastern country. And so when I discovered this, first of all, I knew I was going to have to immediately voluntarily disclose myself on behalf of my client. But in addition, I had to secure the aircraft and we were just days away from delivering this aircraft. And we're talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars of of aircraft that, that this foreign government had purchased from us. And we had to secure it. And we knew that we were not going to be able to turn it over until we resolve this issue. And the, the bottom line is it's it's very scary. It's very scary to have to call the business and explain to them that a huge, very, very significant business project that's just about to be wrapped up now has this critical wrinkle. And I will never forget the moment that I opened that email. And then, of course, you know, you you start furiously calling your your outside counsel 
folks. And, and what was especially crazy then is we only worked with really, really excellent global trade lawyers and in big firms in Washington. And the advice was all over the place about exactly uh, what to do next. And it ended up eating up the next two years of my life. Uh, yeah, I would say that that definitely that definitely qualifies as that as well. So, how do you secure an aircraft? I mean, did you have like a team of, you know, like bounty hunters on your on your staff that you just sent in, or I'm just curious, like what went down there? It was in a hangar, and so we we basically, you know, we secured the hangar and and had some some security staff there 24 seven until we got it resolved. All right, that's a little less fun than having a team of, you know, snipers or bounty hunters on your staff. But okay, anyway, I digress. Okay, so let's pivot then. What is one of the proudest moments of your career, Val? When I was a student, I was working with the Innocence Project and we secured an exoneration. And then several years later in private practice, I continued my pro bono efforts with the Innocence Project and secured a, a second DNA-based exoneration. So those were huge. On the sort of more corporate side, I would say that I, I once had a client out of London. It was a an online gambling operation. And they had US-facing business, which was violating the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act, or the UIGEA. And that process of working with the DOJ and negotiating uh, the non-prosecution agreement was huge for me. When I think about really, really feeling proud, I think wrapping that up. And the year prior... One of uh, my client's competitors had settled with the DOJ for 105 million, and we settled for 33 million. And I, I will never forget feeling just extraordinarily <laughs> proud of the negotiation process that took place. We had a similar big win representing Nordam on a settlement with the Department of Justice relating to the FCPA. I mean, I think when you when you get the client through something and you come out the other side knowing that the business will go on and the budgeted money is going to cover it and and more. It's a great feeling. Absolutely. And I feel like in that moment, you can really prove the value of compliance, right? Yeah. I mean, look, these those particular examples were when I was kind of doing like active federal criminal investigations as opposed to the proactive work. But the proactive work is in many ways even more rewarding. If you can keep people out of the hot water and you can keep the train on the track, that's even a bigger win. And I think in a more kind of broad way of thinking about my career, you know, now that I am mixing together some of the technology and the data analytics and the things that I that I learned from from building GAN with you guys, together with my white collar and 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 just compliance advising experience, it's it's a neat thing to be able to kind of see where the compliance industry is going and have something to offer. You know, really know that you're offering some value that will ultimately elevate our profession. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier compliance's reputation and often internally at organizations, it's it's not a great one. They're thought of rule makers, business blockers. But what do you think compliance professionals can do to combat and overcome these assumptions? You know, I, I really do think that it's that it's already happening. I think technology is a big piece of that. If you think about other business units that, that now have a bigger voice, um, you think about HR, for example, HR 10 years ago, was not at the table in a meaningful way. And I think compliance increasingly is no longer considered a redheaded stepchild of the legal department. I think compliance has its own voice. And in fact, the enforcement agencies are requiring that kind of autonomy from the compliance function. And I think the technology that's supporting it is also allowing the work to shine. I mean, too often, the compliance people are engaged and involved and get the attention when something has gone wrong. 
but allowing visualization and dashboarding and, and being able to really show and demonstrate the stakeholders all the affirmative things that we do to keep the train on the track. That's important. And that over time is, is elevating the profession. I also think, look, when I worked at Integrity, I had the unique experience of, of the bird's eye view. I mean, I, I worked with 200 plus global programs and got to know a lot of different CCOs and leadership styles. And the best chief compliance officers or just compliance professionals generally are the ones that understand the business. I mean, you can't go to a compliance conference without hearing people talking about operationalizing. It's sort of this buzzword, you know? And the truth is that's really, really important. You can't be top down. It can't be, you know, hall monitor or putting your hand out to say no every time. It's about being creative with the risk mitigation. It's about understanding what is driving and incentivizing other people in the business and then figuring out how to place your gates and controls within the flow of the business in such a way that disturbs it as little as possible. And the the people who are really good at doing that, they're embedded in the business and they're creative. And to be honest, they understand the business, I think, better than lawyers do by far. It's a fun thing to be able to do. I love that you just touched on creativity because I know we've we've talked before. I think a lot of people wouldn't think about compliance as a traditionally creative role, but I think when you frame it like that, it it really can be. And I love kind of flipping that assumption on its head a little bit. Yeah. I mean, look, there's an art to it. If you think about kind of how to stand back and then really look at the at the flow of revenue and look at the different people involved to make things happen, to make a business successful. And then you think, okay, I got to identify where the risks are, but then the way that you go and implement the mitigation efforts and where you place those controls it inevitably will at times cause friction or slow down the pace of the business. But if you're really good at it, it, it won't slow it down much. Let's talk about program maturity. So you have a unique perspective in that you've worked in-house on the tech vendor side and now are on the consulting side. So where do you think compliance professionals get stuck when they're trying to level up their programs? I do think there has been just a massive change in the way that that compliance people operate in the last, you know, 5 years. And I think that's going to continue. S- similar to talking about operationalizing programs, you can't go to a conference without having, you know, four different panels on data analytics or AI or machine learning. And those are things that not so long ago would have been very foreign concepts to people who usually either come out of a legal background or an audit background sitting in compliance. Starting to understand and demystify data analytics and how it fits into compliance is a really important part of evolving your program or leveling up your program. And, and it can be scary. I mean, it can be scary. Those, those concepts are not uh, comfortable for many people. Having said that, data is just information. And we all have information about our programs. The most obvious example is hotline or case management data, but we have lots of other data. We have data about our third parties. We have data that we get from HR that touches on what we do in compliance. We have data relating to conflicts of interest. We have data relating to the mitigation efforts and the controls and whether they're working or not. All of those things are data sets. And if we just start thinking about how to look at them through a different lens, look at them over time and pattern recognition. I mean, that's all machine learning is, right? It's looking at data over a long period of time and starting to be able to get smarter as to what the data means over a longer span and from a different lens. And that's that's something that, you know, for, for me now in this role at Stone Turn, I'm super happy to be able to take 
you know, the white collar criminal defense background and marry it with the technology and data analytics background and be able to advise clients in a way that is much more holistic. How do you think compliance professionals can really look to leverage technology? And and what would you say if you're somebody that's early in an adoption curve, you may have some tools in place, you probably have something, but really are looking to take it up one or two notches and really leverage technology within their program. What do you think are some of the best things that these folks can do to really infuse technology to make it really an enabler in taking that program up? You don't have to boil the ocean. Doing this bit by bit, taking a program that may still have uh, heavy administrative and manual components and getting it into a place that is is more automated and really takes advantage of technology isn't going to be done overnight. I think depending on your industry, depending on, on the business risk, a likely place to start is with uh, third-party risk, for example. I mean, that tends to be, if you've got global operations, an area where technology can certainly be helpful. It can be overwhelming. Several years ago, there were probably one or two well-known tech players in the compliance space, and now there are, you know, the sky's the limit. And I, I do think that getting smart to what's out there and then taking it on bit by bit in relationship to to the risk of your particular organization, that's how you do it. You do it one one bit at a time. You're talking a little bit about, you know, your role as a consultant now. You're still new there, but kind of how are things going for you there? What's it looking like to you and, and, and where you think you're going to take that? Stone Turn's a special place. We are a global advisory firm and we do everything from the proactive compliance things that I work on, which include risk assessments and benchmarking and programmatic assessments and third-party program management, and and actually even kind of what you're talking about, like tech stack evaluation, coming in and looking at, are you doing things in an efficient way? Are, are you Is there too much administrative lift? Is there extra room for human error where it's unnecessary to, to have that that risk? Those are all things that, that I personally do, but the firm is really cool because we are such a diverse group. You know, we have a whole bunch of forensics people and, and people who can do deep dive accounting work. We have controls testing. We have great data analytics team. We have deep investigations capabilities. We've got all sorts of former intelligence folks, former AUSAs. It's a fascinating place to be. And I think, to be honest, consulting firms are just really well positioned to address the compliance market as it is today and where it's going. There is always going to be a place, a a very important place for white collar lawyers. But I do think that some of these other controls, testing, data analytics, intelligence, these things that that we can do from a consulting firm platform, I I think we're better suited to, to help with programmatic proactive needs. What does compliance and ethics mean to you? Obviously, you've been in the industry for years now and in different capacities, but why does it matter and what does it mean to you? I like keeping people out of the hot water. It's arguably less sexy than helping them once they're in the hot water, but I like it. And, you know, we do both here at Stone Turn anyway. If you look at what's happened in corporate America with risk, it's no longer just regulatory. It's no longer, can we do this black or white? Is Are we on the right side of the regulation or the law? It's a lot broader. I mean, social media has opened up all sorts of different types of risk, reputational risk, the way that consumers interact with their brands is very, very different. I mean, you think about something like the fallout with with Uber. These are things that that wouldn't have happened before social media was was really involved in part of the risk profile. So I think it's exciting. You know, thinking about ethics on a broader scale is a really kind of important part of where the compliance profession is going. And 
And I like being a part of it. I mean, I like thinking about sustainability and all the ESG stuff that's going on. I, I just think this area is is only growing and only becoming more complicated and sort of being at the forefront of it, both from a subject matter point of view and from a technology point of view. You know, I feel really lucky in my career to be doing something so exciting. Do you have an OSHIP moment that you'd like to share knowing that it will help others like you? Shoot us an email at riskybusiness at We'd love to hear from you.